Hello, and welcome to the Eastern Front. My name is Giselle Donnelly, and I'm a senior fellow at the American Enterprise Institute. I'm joined by my colleagues, Dalibur Rojas from AI, and Yulia Zoza with the Middle East Institute and Georgetown University. On our podcast, we talk about the many challenges to the European peace that have emerged along a line which runs from the Baltic Sea to the Black Sea, what we call the Eastern Front, about why these matter to the United States. If you enjoy this episode, please consider subscribing, rating, and reviewing on Apple Podcasts, Spotify, or wherever you get your podcasts. And welcome to our session. Today, it's just going to be the three of us because we want to talk, uh, at least at the start, very much about the speech that President Biden gave over the weekend, and particularly his uh, surprise conclusion uh, to his speech uh, which the White House staff says was improvised entirely off script and off message uh, that Vladimir Putin must go. Um, it was the most stark uh, uh, statement of regime change that I've heard from any recent American administration. Uh, and it lasted about as long as, as uh, you know, as it took for the president to say those words before the they were trying to get the toothpaste back into the tube. Just so I can get my two cents in at the start, I'm going to say that getting this toothpaste back in the tube is going to be really hard to do. Um, uh, you know, as I say, it was a very clear and unambiguous statement. And trying to make it sound ambiguous just makes the White House look ridiculous. And w once uttered, you can't unhear these things. Also, the fact that it's uh, probably the right policy um, uh, uh, makes a difference, too. But I'll tell you, the thing that most upsets me about it is the fact that the people who are going to pay the price for Biden's uh, sloppiness are the Ukrainians themselves. Yep. It's one thing to hide behind uh, the valiant efforts of the Ukrainian army and President Zelensky. It's another thing to shove them in the back forward um, uh, so that they can uh, become further the object of Vladimir Putin's wrath and am ambitions. Um, and especially because finally there's been no serious substantive change to the policy of arming Ukraine uh, in dribs and drabs and with the most defensive kind of weaponry. So here endeth my brief sermon, uh, and I open the pulpit to either of my colleagues who may wish to continue to elaborate the text for today. Dolly Bohr, why don't you jump in? So I guess, like in my Twitter feed, there were there were two kinds of reactions to to what the president did at the end of his speech, which otherwise was, you know, it was delivered in the typical Biden-esque way, but it was not a bad speech, in my opinion. Uh, it just got eclipsed by this by this ending. So so one category of people are sort of, you know, cheering on. I saw that there already are T-shirts with a picture of the president and his and his sunglasses and, and, and the quote and people who were comparing it to, you know, Mr. Gorbachev there Take down, down the wall speech. Yeah which doesn't strike me as particularly compelling. And then on the other extreme, I've seen, you know, Elbridge Colby and uh, Patrick Porter from Birmingham saying that this uh, is irresponsible. 
I think Elbridge Colby said that this is, I have it written here, it's either it's bad policy, totalizes our rivalries, alienates potential allies, turns every confrontation into an existential standoff, not what we need in these dangerous times. I think that also sort of falls short of, of, of a sort of accurate assessment of, of reality because this doesn't turn every confrontation into an existential standoff. It just recognizes as the current one might be one. Uh, and I have, I suppose my own view is, uh, is, is composed of like four elements. One is that I obviously share the, the sentiment behind, behind the president's gaff, right? We all want uh, Putin to go. Uh, secondly, I think it's, not terribly useful to read out the stage instructions out loud in situations like this. The president is not a think tanker. He's not a commentator. Like his, his words are, are consequential. And then thirdly, um, you know, the question is what's, what's the follow, follow through? Like what, what, what does Therefore this mean? Therefore what? Yeah. Yeah. So like when, when George HW Bush said this aggression will not stand, like that wasn't the gaff that was part of a sort of carefully calculated move that ended up with the liberation of of Kuwait. Like so, so what has changed in terms of our policy is is the relevant question. I don't think anything has changed if we if we are to follow what what the White House is is saying when they are trying to walk it walk it back. And and fourthly, and and that I think is is is, is the aspect that worries me the most is that this like some of the other slips of the president's tongue like the no fly zone thing uh or no actually that no, 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 no that wasn't his his guff but you know like like his his minor incursion slip mm-hmm. and then the sort of question about no fly zone uh over ukraine like that that sort of like this place is the real conversation we should be having like now we're going to talk about the semantics and whether he meant what he said and why he said it and 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 like you know, like this podcast is already an example of that. There is, you know, in, into minute six, and 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 we are talking about a sort of minor sentence that probably should have never been uttered. So, so overall, it strikes me as rather unhelpful. Well, if I could, if I could just interrupt and push back, and but maybe tee Yulia up as well. Mm-hmm. There's two ways you can treat it as a as a minor issue, or you can, you can also say like all Washington gaffes, he unintentionally spoke a truth. Um, no. And it should be um, uh, 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 as the, the, this will not uh, stand uh, example reveals the, the preparation for a more serious policy response. But as you say, Dalibor, there's there's no evidence of that so far. So, Yulia, why don't, since Dalibor and I have you know, punched <laughs> this silly, why don't you knock it out? <laughs> <laughs> I was going to ignore it, but um, no, you don't want to do that. Well, I, I think uh, I think this has, as you guys suggested, launched an unnecessary hysteria. From my modest days in a presidential administration, I just do not, maybe this is my little rant, 
I do not understand how the White House can walk back from that stuff. Um, the the language was purposefully vague, and they're serving the president. So that's what he meant. That's what he said. Walking back is not an option. I've seen a lot. No, I'm not going to say how what reactions I saw <laughs> when when people tried to do that. I just think um, it's unnecessary, and it started um, it started like a like Dalibor was saying, kind of a Twitter hysteria. I, but it's it, going to. I'm sorry, it's going to become a measuring stick for Biden's presidency. It will. It uh, I will. Mean, you know, but I don't think it, it, that was voluntary. <laughs> no, but but again, as you say, once uttered, never unheard. Yeah, but but I think just because of the office, I think it's a problem that people are trying to walk back from that immediately saying this is not what he meant. So I think that's that's very undermining in terms of authority and, you know, the whole leader of the free world and all of that. But I want to give credit to where credit is due. Um and and I guess it's in, in two ways then leading back to our rant about how this is insufficient in terms of what he said. But where I do want to give credit is that I thought until very recently before the visit, he's just going to go to Brussels. First of all, he went to Warsaw. He did not go to Kiev. We can talk about that, and I'm sure we will. But he went to Warsaw, and he talked to me the key thing that, got picked up in the region most kind of as a light motif was the long fight. Um, he helped in on looking at the past, legitimizing sort of the eternal fight that we keep talking about of Eastern Europeans that are trying to assert their freedom and their culture and basically assert that their culture is not inferior to the Russian culture, the French culture, the German culture, etc. Um, and I think by using references um, that were regional, um, the Pope, um, uh, the um, uh, different leaders, political leaders in the region, and particularly in Poland, that has helped a bit um, because it came from the West and it wasn't yet another speech in Paris or London and all of that. But beyond that, it still um, kind of solidified the fear that I have, and I think you too are sharing, and, and many of our listeners, that it was completely disconnected from Ukraine's future. Um, I see now for the last four weeks and even before too many people on both sides of the Atlantic musing on you know, freely musing on Ukraine's partitioning, too many planning for the end of this war. And as long as, back to your remarks, as long as we don't give the Ukrainians the tools to destroy Russian military aggression and not just push back, but beyond Ukrainian territory from where the missiles are actually being sent, this will not I don't think this will end anytime soon. Um, we have not given, and Biden with this speech has, you know, triggered a hysteria, but he has not given Ukrainians the tools to actually 
give Putin a reason to stop. Um, we need to assert sort of once and for all that the only outcome acceptable to the West is the outcome acceptable to Ukraine, and that is Ukrainian freedom and independence and sovereignty and territorial integrity. So basically, going back to Ukraine, the only confidence that I have after this is stemming from... Um, what Zelensky has very simply and wisely said, that any decision for the outcome of this war will rest with Ukraine's citizens with a referendum, full stop, shut up to those who are are saying something else. Now, the last thing I'll say to this (laughs) is to put it into perspective of what was going on while he was speaking, Biden. And, And I guess it's just three quick things. Three bombs on Lviv while he was speaking, or more or less in in that time frame. In uh, Romania, next door, the government at that time approved um, that every citizen will get, they overproduced, and every citizen will get a pill of iodine for when the big thing comes that people fear most and Poles and Ukrainians while he spoke um, did this. um, I would recommend looking at the pictures. It's hard to describe thousands of Poles and Ukrainians lay down and played dead while he spoke um, to shed a light on Ukrainians being um, civilians being killed at the same time. So I guess this is my way of putting into perspective. It's great what he did, but but over to you. I was going to give you credit for giving two cheers to the Biden administration, <laughs> but I think I'm going to have to downgrade it to just one. Just one, just one. But, but, but Dolly Moore, uh, President Biden was not the only spineless Western diplomat or leader of the last <laughs> week or 10 days. Why don't, why don't we bring in the rest of the NATO alliance for uh, sure. them in the pillory? Before, before, before I do that, I have to... Uh, bring everybody's attention to one delightful piece of a new cycle in Poland um, around the time of of President Biden's visit. So so on his trip, he went and saw um, soldiers of the, what is it, the 82nd Airborne uh, Division, and he ate pizza with the guys. I love that. Uh, A cheer for that. Pizza, which was made by the Gusto Pizzeria of Głogow, Małopolski, and um, the Polish press has already brought out the pictures of 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 Lady Victoria, Dorota, and Monica, who <laughs> made the pizza, which is now being renamed as the Joe Biden pizza. Apparently, it's <laughs> spicy, had pepperoni on it, and uh, it was just so heartwarming to sort of see you know this sort of percolate in the in the Polish press. They made, I think, like. 80 uh, or 90 pizza pies for 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 the troops uh and it's you know it's, it's a tiny town and apparently everybody is queuing outside to, to get I, I have to, I have to well I have to tell you relate really one anecdote uh, a number of years ago when they first um you know uh, established uh, a semi-permanent presence presence for US forces in in Western Poland, uh, I went to visit and to just lay eyeballs on what the installation was like. And uh, let's, I'll just say that it was, it was a region of Poland that could use some economic influx and some economic help. But the cheery sort of news was that 
the new mansion that was being reconstructed in downtown uh, was owned by the local pizza magnet who had earned his fortune already off of delivering pizza to the American base. <laughs> so, um, right. Um, if we measure American power by the ability to create pizza chains, we're still a global superpower. But, Yay. Uh, uh, so, that, that's uh, right. and okay. so, Yes. Turning back to serious things, so um, there were three different summits last week. Um, there was the NATO summit, there was uh, European Council the same day, and G7, all in Brussels, if I'm if I'm correct. Yes, and uh, I think it provided a sort of test to this notion that everything is different now after Putin had invaded Ukraine. That things can never be the same. Again, Germany spending 2% of its GDP on defense. And uh, again, like in the spirit of, you know, the, the, the morosity with which we carry ourselves throughout <laughs> these, 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 these podcast episodes, I have to say that uh, the European Council fell short of of expectations. Of even European Council standards? <laughs> <laughs> yeah, pretty tragic, well, actually. Have, a bunch of Central Eastern European countries that were pushing very strongly for, uh, if not for candidate status for Ukraine, then at least for some kind of concrete, specific language in, in the summit's conclusions about uh, the timeline and, and, and next steps for, for Ukraine's accession. And none of that really happened. Uh, this is uh, reason- isn't this the second iteration? Like they tried in Versailles, um, and to give this candidate yeah. status, which is just symbolic. And back then, it was vetoed. And I know who did. Do you know who did this time? I, I, I don't. I don't. Uh, but I can see, you know, like few countries doing exactly that. Mm. And plus, in Brussels, I think there is the sense in European institutions of of, of treating accession. Uh, enlargements as a as a sort of you know technical box ticking exercise. There are rules, procedures, time frames. Like when Central Eastern different countries joined, whether Romania forms to Latvia, fill out. There were yeah. you know years and years of negotiations and experts looking at whether our uh, statutory law was was compliant enough with existing uh, European directives. Uh, and I think that toolbox, which actually did help move certain reforms forward in, in, in Central and Eastern Europe mm-hmm. at that time, is just completely inappropriate to the situation which we are seeing in, in Ukraine. And, and so maybe if you know full EU membership is cannot be on the table for a variety of reasons, political, technical, and legal. Uh, I mean, this is a moment for statecraft in which European leaders should be really going out of their way to sort of seize this moment and make sure that there is a path towards something that looks like EU membership for, for Ukraine. It doesn't have to be, you know, strictly speaking, EU membership the way it was understood 10, 15 years ago, but but some way of extending the benefits of being part of the EU to, to a country like Ukraine. I mean, there are all sorts of arrangements. You know, there is the European economic area with Norway, Liechtenstein, Iceland that have access to the single market. Uh, the, again, host of like technical issues around how you sort of translate uh, these 
sort of technical norms directives into an environment like like Ukraine's on a, on a very short time scale. But if it you know if it means just getting Ukrainians access to EU funds, uh, getting them into all kinds of mutual recognition schemes that enable workers to move back and forth, that enable academic qualifications to be recognized elsewhere, etc., etc. It, it, I think this is just a moment for just a lot more creativity and and sort of forward-looking initiative than 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 we are we are really seeing from people who are just stuck in sort of procedure very complacent ways of, of, of doing things one of the sort of the themes of the summits of the week which i found very disheartening both you know it was uh good news in one way but sort of uh, depressing news in another way was the amount of self-congratulation mm. for taking in refugees uh which you know seemed to me to be a poor excuse for giving the Ukrainians the means to defend themselves and to prevent uh, further flight the necessity for further flight uh, uh, from Ukraine. Um, you know, but I think your underlying point, Dalibor, is very much on point, and that is that uh, these institutions. Are, are incapable of looking themselves in the mirror and understanding that they were a product of uh, post World War II security, uh, and and the they were a product of the peace that contrib- that helped to secure the peace after it was won. But here's a case where you know it's pretty clear which is the chicken and which is the egg, uh, if that analogy makes any sense whatsoever. But yeah, until until Ukraine is Secure. It's kind of academic uh, as to what else happens, and a lot of this bureaucratic wheel spinning is a diversion from attention to the the central point. Yeah, I mean, I don't necessarily. Sorry. Yeah, please disagree. Absolutely. Just very short uh, point, which is I don't necessarily begrudge, um, you know, Ursula von der Leyen or the Commission or the High Representative uh, for not taking on the leadership role on this. Yeah, it's not really his job. They don't yeah. really have the mandate to yeah. do it. But people like Emmanuel Macron, like Olaf Scholz, they do. And mm-hmm. they, they should be really stepping up in much, much bigger way. Yeah, I think actually Mrs. Ursula von der Leyen, um, who was criticized before at the national level for good reasons, I think she's done a hell of a job um, in, in the limited remit that she has. It's it's the others that I think are worth pointing fingers at. And to me, there's a common theme here through the EU, through NATO, but within NATO, it's like just this, no, no, we're not going to do this without any reason. But also the Biden administration, it's we're hiding behind the excuse of process and procedure to not to not move. Oh, um, we're looking into that, but it's going to take a while. Or if you think about the EU two weeks ago in Versailles, the reason why some countries vetoed is um, because Ukraine is at war. Yeah, that's why we want to give them candidate status in the first place. Like, this makes no sense. Now, to delve just a bit into NATO, the third kind of thing um, this week, this to me seems another big paradox of, of strategy. So 
Um, what we have decided for this extraordinary summit is to shove down the throat of some Central and Eastern European countries that never wanted it, some military tripwire battle groups. Um, I would like to remind our audience that in 2016, um, Romania proposed for the Warsaw summit then a NATO Black Sea fleet and Bulgaria vetoed um, in like to their face and Turkey seemed to have vetoed according to WikiLeaks. Um, and so this is where we stood a while ago. Now, the when we actually have much more of a Black Sea problem, this was not even put on the agenda, Black Sea fleet. So we have these land battle groups that are relevant to Central and Eastern European countries under NATO umbrella, and of course, leave a complete no and veto on anything more substantial on the Ukraine side. And so I guess to throw it out there in terms of grand NATO strategy, I find it going back to Ukraine without, I'm not doing this on purpose, but honestly, a good interview by Zelensky from recently in The Economist. Um, what he did was to put the NATO countries into four categories. And I have my notes yeah. here um, <laughs> because I find I find that I'm seriously considering whether I'm going to talk, um, I'm going to teach NATO next semester at university from this perspective, putting them into four ca categories. So the first one is um, some countries, I don't mind a long war because it would mean exhausting Russia, even if this would mean the demise of Ukraine and comes at the cost of Ukrainian lives. The second one is I want a quick end because Russia has a big market and our economy is suffering. Um, the third one is the positive one. I recognize fascism in Russia and I want Ukraine to prevail. I want the war to end quickly at any cost because people come first. And then the fourth one, I think we only have one country in this category. I want peace in any possible way because I'm a, an office of the Russian Federation in Europe. Um, so, and so, so we have the United States, Germany, Poland and Hungary. <laughs> I didn't say any names. Yeah. I didn't. I'm, I'm upset. Each one of our European listeners can figure out where their country stands in this. But yes, but, but for the, the, this may go over the heads of an American audience. So let's translate for them. <laughs> well, I, I I'm not. You, I let I let you guys translate. The one thing that I that I guess I want to say about this is that these categories are revealing just as much as they're worrying when it comes to actually looking beyond Ukraine, NATO's Russia policy. We They show us that we are so far away from a shared NATO understanding of the fact that we are fighting a war with Russia through a proxy militarily and then directly for years, economically, cyber, all of that. So with this very sort of thin resolution, I wonder how effective NATO can be in prevailing and in the end achieving its aim. And I'll just put dot, dot, dot and let you guys continue. Dalibor, you're Mr. NATO needs a strategy. This sounds like an ideal point for you to chime in. No, I think there is a real problem you're, you're pointing to, a problem which is not limited to Ukraine. So if if European countries and NATO members don't have a shared understanding of how uh, Russia's aggression against Ukraine should be tackled, 
Um, I think that's that that raises the raises the possibility that if you know a minor incursion were to happen, you know, in a place like Lithuania, um, there would also be countries that would be trying to weasel out of the Article Five commitments. And I, you know, I hope that's not the case. And I hope this is really categorically different. As you know, the president is very, uh, very sort of. Uh, he emphasizes at every opportunity that you know every inch of NATO territory would be defended with the utmost vigor and force of 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 of, of, of the alliance. But 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 I think you know like the, the question doesn't become any different if if it's if it's a piece of Lithuania or if it's already a hot war in in Ukraine. Like you would still have Hungary in the alliance. You would still have you know bunch of other countries that have their own interests and their own perceptions of the of the strategic environment in the in the alliance and yeah i mean i wonder to what extent this should lead countries like poland to to really forge sort of ad hoc relationships with you know the uk the us get as many troops in you know as close to the border as possible so that really a and Russian incursion would mean Russians shooting at at the light soldiers. Well, look, I mean, maybe this kind of brings us full circle because I think the temptation for us to turn this into a therapy session is almost uh, overwhelming. But I would just say, look, if you don't know where you're going, any path will take you there. If you don't have a strategic object, then it's very difficult to come up with a strategy. Um, again, the uh, the sort of clarifying effect of Biden's gaffe could be an opportunity because, you know, the problem is Russia and Vladimir Putin and what we should be about and doesn't mean that we have to, you know, begin nuclear war uh, uh, tomorrow. But the regime change uh, in, in Moscow, I mean, uh, Putin has demonstrated that once again, the, the problem for European security originates uh, in the Kremlin, and I think you can or, you could organize whether it's through NATO or some new formal institution or ad hoc institution. And I would take you know I'll take any of the answers that are on offer. The clear purpose should be around which you can build a military posture. Um, and all the other kinds of policies you need is is to um, secure the Eastern Front for the purpose of, you know, as we did in the Cold War, for creating a a, a moment of second thoughts or regime change in Moscow. We blew that one time already, and I have lived to deal with the unhappy consequences of the failure to secure that. And now we can't even, you know, if we say it out loud, which we did uh, back in the early 50s, if you read the founding documents of the Cold War, they were, you know, NSC 68 was a regime change document. And again, it did, it prevented nuclear exchange, but it still ended in the collapse of the Soviet empire. We should dedicate ourselves to the collapse of the Putin empire equally now, it seems to me. Okay. 
second sermon ended. But but I think even if we weren't, I I can see why people are scared of this or are just less ambitious than that, cannot conceive of that. But even then, we still have the problem of Russian interference in elections, cyber attacks, and economic influence. And so we're now finding ourselves basically over these few weeks deeply entrenched with Russian influence when Russia is finally the opponent. Um, and and then I see all the time, apropos Twitter feeds and, and pundits and all of that, all these questions and, and assessments of when can we walk back from this? When can we lift sanctions? How can we get over this quickly? I think this, these categories that Zelensky was, was enumerating are, are kind of revealing of that. How quickly do people want to go back to normal? So even in that, NATO seems to have a problem or seems to, to be rendered, God, I don't want to quote Macron, but you know, I don't know what to call oh, it out. This is a guilt-free uh, <laughs> session. <laughs> Brain dead? No. Oh, I like NATO. But but it seems that we're mentally completely unprepared to even fight a non-conventional, even like you say, name the object, name Russia as a problem. And how can we at least in the in the near future push back and don't have russia in our midst in in the transatlantic space even that to me is a huge problem for for many member states so, so i guess like the po- coalitions so i guess the possible sort of silver lining to to this michael kingsley guff is that it will move the overton window so to speak towards a situation in which yes we can talk about finally sort of sustainable long-term policies that will eventually bring about regime change in Russia. You know, say, these sorts of sanctions can't go away as long as this thuggish regime is in power, saying that, you know, there'll be NATO troops in Eastern Europe permanently because US, uh, what is Russia-NATO founding act has been thrown out of the window and so on and so forth. Except we don't really see much evidence for for this guff having that that kind of salutary mm. effect, judging by the reactions, you know, the sort of chin stroking, oh, we shouldn't be talking this way and this is unhelpful and how oh, this might be escalation and and so on and so forth. So 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 that's I think that's disheartening, isn't it? It is it is it- but it feeds Go into ahead. the lack of solidarity because I obviously see a lot of Western Europeans who are now confirmed in their, oh, this is an American problem. The Americans are always so belligerent. Um, Russia doesn't have a problem with this country or that country. So let's distance ourselves from, from the United States and the crazy polls and let's move on with business as usual. Not great. Well, the good news, here's the really good news, is that the Ukrainians may may save us from ourselves. I mean, I know. it's not for it's not for NATO to rescue Ukraine; it's for Ukraine to rescue NATO and United States interests in Europe. So that's that is the uh, the best punctuation that I can offer. Maybe before we wrap up, can we just briefly, for the week to come, evaluate what our hopes are um, for that? Macron operation in Mariupol? Uh, that it uh, that it 
that it doesn't result in any permanent damage. Uh, uh, Julia, why don't you explain to, for the audience's sake uh, sure. what exactly Junior uh, so, uh, Zelensky has in mind? Yeah. <laughs> last time I checked, Macron was saying that he's forged this super special uh, unseen-before coalition with Turkey and Greece for a humanitarian evacuation out of Mariupol for everyone who wants to leave. Um, and he said on Saturday, last time I checked, I don't think there's any news um, until the, uh, since then, that he's going to talk to Putin about it in the next 24 to 72 hours. <laughs> Which okay. you can't yeah. even you can't even say that out loud without breaking into a, a giggle, right? I don't sound like the sort of rah rah American, but my sense of how this should be done would be for somebody like Macron to announce that, that it's we happening were going right now. To do this is happening. There are ships, and ships have guns and rockets, and also humanitarian aid and whatnot. And should Russians try anything? they'll be met with force. And obviously you communicate privately with the Russians as well, but, but to sort of make this plea and, and, you know, has he followed up? Do we know? Has he talked to Putin? Like he, maybe they talk every day. Who knows? They do. Uh, He's now the this, therapist. This but, would be, this would be a naval battle between two powers who can't get their aircraft carriers out of port. But it's not exactly a sort of <laughs> Jupiterian display we we got used to. No, no, no but it, ke- it keeps it keeps his name in the headlines, and you know, the elections so. coming. All right, all so- right. Um, <laughs> I think we should all check with the secretary on the way out and make an appointment for next week to continue the therapy session. <laughs> On that note, sounds good. From me, Giselle Donnelly, and my colleagues, Dalboro Hatch and Julia Zosa. Thank you all for putting up with us for this session of the Eastern Front. Our podcast is dedicated to the security challenges arising along the line from the Baltic to the Black Sea. You can find more episodes and additional content on our website at aei.org or on Apple Podcasts. Spotify, or wherever you get your podcast. Please be in touch with us on Twitter using the hashtag Eastern Front Pod. That's one word. And if you enjoyed this episode, please consider subscribing, rating, and reviewing us. Thank you so much, and goodbye until next time.